Welcome to the St. Mark's Lutheran Church by the Narrows podcast channel. Today's podcast comes from our Sunday Forum series, To Give You a Future and a Hope, led by Pastor Mark Gravrock. If you would like to view and download the slides made to accompany this forum, there is a link available in the episode description. And now, here's Pastor Mark. As you're well aware, if you've studied with me before, um, I love to use music along with it. Um, I asked the choir this morning, any of them might happen to be here, please help me out on this one, because I actually pulled my guitar out this morning. I was going to accompany myself with guitar, and I realized I can't sing in that key. <laughs> so I left that home. Um, and how many of you know this song? Enough, of, enough to give us a to give us a good start. Hum a few bars. Though the earth shall change, though the mountains tremble, though the waters rage, you are here. Though the nations war, though the peoples battle, though the empire falters, we will not fear. Though the earth shall change, though the mountains tremble, though the waters rage, you God are here. Though the nations war, though the peoples battle, though the empire falters, we will not fear. What I'm sharing with you these five weeks is uh, what, what we shared up at Holden Village last fall. Uh, every other fall up at Holden, we have a, a fall sojourn at Holden Village, which we've ran now for four years every other year. Um, this is the first time it was a Montana Synod event, the first time we pulled that off. And each year it has grown and burst the bounds of Montana long ago. There are a few Montanans that still come to that, but it's, uh, it's far, far wider in its reach. We usually have in September, um, every other September, we'll have four different speakers, including um, a musician for the week. It's a, just been a rich week every other fall. So this last fall, what they had asked me to do for my part of that was um, a Bible study focused on genuine biblical hope. What would that be in the midst of our times? Um, the night before we went up to Holden, Peggy and I were staying in, in Wenatchee in our hotel, getting ready to get onto the boat the next morning. And we, that's when we got the message that my grandnephew, 25-year-old Jake, had been uh, out bicycling and was killed by a drunk driver. And so we were reeling from that as we came up to, uh, to Holden. And I realized I needed just to be straight with people as, we, as I started the, the week. First of all, because many of them knew me already and they knew my typical energy level, which is more than I have today. Um, and they would be able to tell that I was muted. And I wanted them to know why I was muted and be able to just be honest about that. But then I also realized as I thought about it, That's shortness of breath, that's not emotion right now. That mm -hmm. like it in there too, but um, that what, what we were reeling with about Jake's death was on a personal level the same thing as we're reeling with in the, in the huge picture, in the huge issues that we're talking about in a course like this and in our worldwide wrestling. It's the same thing, whether you're talking about global pandemics or um, a catastrophe in our climate, or um, politics, and war, and all the rest, or whether you're dealing with coming down with cancer, or why does, why did my mother survive cancer, but my sister die of cancer? What, how does that work, God? It's part of our faith. It's part of the life of, of faith universally, that on the one hand, we believe that we have a God who cares about us individually, wants the best for us, promises to walk with us and to care for us and to give us life abundantly. And on the other hand, every last one of us comes across crap in our lives 
that we that makes us makes our heads spin and we go, God, where did this come from? Where were you? Why did you let Jake just get killed by a drunk driver? What's going on there? That's a universal thing. And it's part of, that's the microcosm of the macrocosm that we're going to be talking about in here. But we're going to be going back and forth throughout these weeks about what is real biblical hope when things don't necessarily work out like we think they ought to. That makes sense? Let's pray. Gracious God, you hold this world and our lives in your hands. And sometimes, Lord, it doesn't look like it. Open us to what, who you are and what you are about. Lead us. Draw us into the kind of trust that you would have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've been up to Holland Village, you, you know that for every course that goes on during the week, they post up on the, on the ARC bulletin boards up there the uh, little blurbs about everything that goes on. This was the blurb for the week, okay? Um, given the climate threat to our planet and given the ramping up of, and polar, of polarization and hate in society and politics, do we have any realistic hope for this world? These sessions explore resources from both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, aiming to go deeper than our favorite feel-good Bible verses. Um, so that was September. If you remember what happened in October, uh, we can add another huge piece to that catalog up there, the uh, Israel-Gaza war, which also stirs up all the Ukraine stuff as well. Um, all of these heavy, heavy things that we feel so helpless about. Okay. Before we go any further, though, I want to touch on that that, that last piece, the, our favorite feel-good Bible verses. I don't want to. I don't want to um, to downplay those feel-good Bible verses because they matter. They're, they're there for a reason. But I'd like to just surface some of those. When you are uh, struggling, or when you are faced with a challenge of some kind in your life, is there a favorite passage that you that's your first go-to? In scripture, where do you go? Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Yes. Okay. To the song. Yes. There was, uh, I don't know if it was a video or what we had when my son died. And I blasted this through the house um, full volume. After their son died, they blasted that video through the house at full volume. Amazing grace. Yes? Lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. Lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. Last verse of Matthew. Mm -hmm. 23rd Psalm. 23rd Psalm. How many of you have 23rd Psalm as one of your go-to places? Okay, where else? Romans 8. Romans 8. What about Romans 8? Nothing can separate us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Yeah. Um, when my wife passed, I was trying to find something, and she didn't come to church much, but I found a piece of paper in her car with Galatians 6-9. Which is? That if we do good, we will reap what we sow. Okay. Galatians 6-9. Others? Oh, God. Um, uh, Philippians 4, 6-7, yeah. um, I'm going to butcher it. Butcher it is just fine. Okay, all right. Um, give all your worries and cares to God. Yes. By prayer and petition. Thank Him for all He's done and all He's going to do. And we will understand His peace, which transcends all human understanding. Yeah. Butchered it, but... You got the gist out. You got the gist out. <laughs> yep. Yeah, in our worries, bring those worries to God. Um, bring, um, bring, bring all of them in prayer and thanksgiving and the peace of God that passes all understanding will keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Okay, I'm going to upend that one in just a moment, but don't worry. <laughs> uh, Jeremiah 12, 22. 
uh, for I know the plans I have for you, for good and not for evil. Okay, we'll come back to that one today. Okay, others that come to mind right away? Is there something to the effect that um, God's ways are not our ways? Something? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Particularly uh, in Isaiah 55, and then Jesus does his own version of it in Mark 8. Yeah, my, my plans are not your plans, my ways are not your ways. My, my thinking is higher than yours. Yeah, that's a helpful one for me, too. The lilies of the field. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Those are, so I don't want to denigrate that by calling them feel good, feel good Bible verses. They are feel good Bible verses. Um, the, I think where, it, where those become um, cheap for me is where I, I just toss them out as, oh, okay, it's all going to be fine, and I'll toss out my favorite verse and not face whatever's happening. But there is real promise in all of those feel-good Bible verses. So I did want to surface some of those. In my own upbringing, my, my family's uh, key psalm, that way was Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. We use that one in our family for birthdays and anniversaries and comings and goings. And, um, it was just deeply ingrained in, in, our, in our lives. Um, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. That one, um, you know, if you just read that as the Lord will keep you from all evil and then something evil happens to you. <laughs> or that, how'd that work out? <laughs> but on another level, I found, and other, many others, uh, pastoral care folks, have also found that to be one of the most marvelous psalms for hospice work. When you're at the, bed, at, at the bedside of folks or people journeying through that death process, uh, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you going out and you're coming in. And all of a sudden you're going out and coming in has new depth to it. And this time forth and forevermore. These promises have layers and depth and richness to them. Okay. That's the overall course for where we're going. This week, uh, about this God and a broken world, and I did not know that the text this morning in church was going to be the flood story, the, the flood promise. That's actually part of the key piece that we're looking at this morning. So, today's theme. After the flood in Genesis 9, God makes a new commitment to the earth. Creation has become a broken beauty irrevocably marked by violence. What does God's commitment look like to such a world? And how does it play out? That's where we're going today. So the focus will be on God's response at the end of the flood. We'll do some little stuff before and a little stuff after. Um, it might be pretty clear that the court, this course title comes from a passage that one of you just lifted up a little while ago. Uh, Jeremiah 29. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future and a hope. How many of you have that one as a key, key passage to lean on? Several of you. That word welfare, sometimes translated peace, sometimes translated well-being, it's the Hebrew word shalom, which is complete well-being and wholeness in every way. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your shalom, plans for your wholeness, and not for harm, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Does that infer predestination? Pardon me? Does that infer predestination? Does it infer predestination? I don't think so. Just asking. Yeah. <laughs> for it's, um, it's actually one of the... Just a, a quick response to that. I know the plans I have for you. Literally in the Hebrew, it's, I know, I know the thoughts that I'm thinking for you. I know what I have in mind for you. Um, and one of the passages where Jesus, one of the, one of the most heart-rendering passages of Jesus is when he looks at Jerusalem and says, how often have I longed 
um, to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. How often have I wanted to do that, but you didn't want it. And there you've got a, a key scriptural passage that indicates God's own, Jesus' own, clear desire for you and plan, for us and plan for us. And we have the capability of thwarting that. Um, so yeah, God can have all kinds of plans, thoughts, desires, intentions for us. And I can say no and walk a different direction. I don't know what that means for final wrap-up of stuff, but I, I'm pretty capable of thwarting God on a regular basis. I just want to say something about the historical context of those verses. I was hoping going to ask if somebody would. <laughs> the people were in exile in Babylon without hope. Without hope. Yep. And it had been there for, for decades. So it looked, looked pretty, pretty bleak. So there was this promise that came to them. Yes. In the midst of the bleakness of their circumstance. Thank you. I think that context is pretty crucial. So uh, 596, I think, was some, somewhere in there, 595 BC, was the first deportation. The Babylonians came in and walked on Israel the first time, carted the cream of the crop off into exile in Babylon. A whole bunch of folks, including Jeremiah, are still there in, in Jerusalem, are still there in the land. It hasn't been totally crushed yet. Well, with that, for about 10 years, you've got one group off in exile in Babylon, and you've got prophets there saying, um, thus says the Lord, any day now we're going home. Don't worry, folks. Hang on. We're good. God's going to bring us home soon. And God has Jeremiah send this letter to the exiles in Babylon saying, uh-uh, going to be a long time, like 70 years. Um, and so, and so the, in this passage, um, Jeremiah, God through Jeremiah calls the people, the exiles in Babylon to settle down, build houses, work your jobs, marry your kids, build your families, settle in for the long haul. And in fact, within a very few years, the next huge group of exiles went out to join them. And they were there, and Jerusalem was destroyed. And they were there for 50, 60 years before, they, before God let them come home. Now, so here's the, here's the other piece of that same passage. So while you are in your exile there, build your houses, establish your families, settle down, seek the shalom, seek the well-being of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its shalom you will find your shalom. Let's think for a moment about the global crisis that we're in, the economic crises, the climate crisis, the political crises, the violence. Um, the temptation for us is to want to zip away somewhere else. What's God calling us to? Stay put. Well, okay, okay. But when do you need to be Navalny? When do you need to be Navalny? Okay, when do you, you know, is if, if you're talking to Russia mm -hmm. and you're saying, Russia, okay, settle in, be okay, you put up with Putin, just let it go. When, how do you know when you need to be Navalny? Mm. Oops. That begs the question, what does it mean to seek the wholeness of the place where I've sent you into exile? Oh, okay, all right. Does it mean... I just put up with whatever's there. Mm. Go right along with the status quo. Is that what it means? Oh, okay. Or does it mean something else? Okay. okay. I know the answer, but I'm not going <laughs> 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 to. Okay. We'll be coming. This is our, our theme verse for the for the course. We'll be coming back to it from time to time. Um, Psalm 46. One of you mentioned that as a as a go-to passage. Or at least one of the passage verses in Psalm 46. It's a very no well-known one. It's the one from whom Luther derived his mighty fortress is our God. There's a good reason why Lutherans should find this as a go-to passage. Um, I'm going to rest my voice, but some I know the writing is small. As someone who can read it, would you read the first stanza for us? God is our refuge and strength, 
a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth shall change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though its mountains tremble with its tumult, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Thank you. What's the imagery of this first stanza? Earthquake. Earthquake. Floods. Shaking in the natural order. Whether, whether it's meant metaphorically or, or literally, either way, it doesn't matter. So the earth is changing, mountains are shaking, waters are roaring, mountains trembling. But in the midst of all that, the Lord of hosts is with us. I added that last line, by the way. If you actually read Psalm 46, it shows up at the end of stanza 2 and the end of stanza 3. And there are a number of scholars who think it also belongs at the end of stanza 1, and I think so too, but it's not there in the Bible. <laughs> Just for honesty's sake here. Second stanza, would someone read that please for us? There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of the city. It shall not be moved. God will help it when the morning dawns. The nations are in an uproar. The kingdoms totter. God's voice speaks out. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Thank you. If you look in, what's the imagery in the middle of the passage, of the middle of the stanza? What's going on? War. War. Yeah, nation is in an uproar, kingdoms tottering. And in the midst of that, you've got this image of a river, a gentle river flowing through the city. By the way, if you go to Jerusalem, there is no river that flows through the city. There ain't one there at all. Okay? The, the river is a metaphor. What's it a metaphor for? Make us think. The people. Or the people? God's spirit. God's spirit? Life. It's Life. also true that if you live in the desert and there's a promise of water, that's a good promise. Yes, it is. Yeah, this is, there's, there's so much biblical water stuff that makes no sense in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> we, would have a, we would have different metaphors if the Bible were written here. But yeah. Yeah, and because this is a metaphor, you gave a number of different responses to what would that what would that river be, and it's not because it's a poetic metaphor. It's not nailed down to just one meaning. It's got open possibilities to it, but all of them are uh, something refreshing and something calming and, and healing running through the middle of a conflict-threatened city. Third stanza. Would someone read that one for us, please? Thank you, Chris. Come, behold the works of the Lord. What desolations God has brought on the earth. God makes wars to cease to the end of the earth, breaks the bow and shatters the spear, burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Thank you. How does God, in this psalm, how does God address a warring world? Breaks all weapons. Breaks all weapons, burns them up. The, I'm presuming the desolations that God has brought on the earth are desolations of all our warring. In context, I think that makes sense. Breaking the bow, shattering the spear, burning the shield with fire, and then, and, the, and if you think, try to think of this historically, has God quieted all the wars in the world? No. I don't think so. Not that I've noticed lately. But that then be still and know that I am God. How, how, how do you hear that line? Well, I've got another fun question. Okay, I won't disturb that. Oh, go ahead and disturb it. Well, what desolations God has brought on the earth? Tell me about that. How did God bring them? What desolations has God brought on the earth? It's wide open to interpretation. Yeah. And that's where 
there are a number of different ways you can go with it. And that's where, I, in the context of this, I think it, it particularly with the following verses, God bringing desolations on, upon our warring. But I don't know if that's actually what it means or not. How do you hear, be still? Listen. Listen. Calm down. Calm down? <laughs> Relax. Relax. This is a passage that's used often to invite people to meditation. Be still and know that I am God. And it works very nicely in that context. I don't think that's what it means. <laughs> trust. Trust. Wait. Yeah, the knowing that I am God, that's got the trust in it, doesn't it? Wait. Wait. It's a, the verb that's used there uh, for to be still is not the... There are a number of Old Testament words for to be still. And this is not a typical one. It's a rare one. And it basically means to, it's got, the picture behind it is to drop your hands. Whatever you've been doing, drop your hands. In other words, knock it off. <laughs> stop what you're doing. And that can either be to stop your, our warring madness, to stop our battles with one another, or it could be to stop our getting ourselves into a tizzy, worried about what's happening with everything. Mm -hmm. Knock it off. And know that I am God. That's where trust comes in there. Knock it off and know who really is God. Well, this is... We will um, we'll return to this psalm as well later on in our weeks together. But it's a, it's a solid place to begin. And guess what? We were just singing it. Though the earth shall change, though the mountains tremble, though the waters rage, you, God, are here. Though the nations war, though the peoples battle, though the empire falters, we are not fear. Though the earth shall change, This one, oh, yes. Can we go back to the last point? Do you have time to just one more? That one and then the one before. I, I'm, I'm just still not really comfortable with that be still, I, unless it's kind of zen, focus your action. Because otherwise, what are you saying? I mean, when, you're, when there's conflict around yeah. and you're trying to help be a positive, peaceful force that requires action. And so how, so what does that be still mean? Just make sure you're right in the head with prayer, understanding that it's God at work, but you're still active. Other thoughts, responses? I think of it totally different. I think of it the fact that there is only so much I can do, and I do as much as I can do. Mm -hmm. But then I can listen to too much news, and I can get all in a flutter um, with a certain person <coughs> selling gold tennis shoes now <laughs> that I need to back away and be still. Okay. Yeah, I think of, of anxiety, the general anxiety that can rise up and be a hindrance to clear thinking, and we let anxiety decline, and things become clearer, and God can speak, and, and we can see and move better. Okay, not anxiety. Inner anxiety. Others of you? How are you hearing? I don't hear it as be passive. Um, no. Being centered 
is a very intentional action. Yes. Letting go or knocking it off is a very intentional action, which isn't passive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. See that last part again? Letting go and centering is, is not uh, being passive. It's a very intentional action. Okay, I agree. Yep. Maybe it's not unlike last Sunday's transfiguration. Listen to him. Mm -hmm. Listen to him from last Sunday's transfiguration. Listen. Yeah, and it, once again, we're we're in poetry. By definition, when you're in poetry, we're not locking down single be possible meanings of things. Poetry, poetic images of their very nature, open up different possibilities. And so I have no intention of trying to close down to one meaning or another. A couple of different ways you can think about this, and, and um, more often our responses are going toward um, how, are, how are we responding in terms of, of our anxiety and our struggle with, with, with all of what's going on. Um, anxiety itself and working ourselves into a tizzy or whatever is, uh, ends up being a, a fraught-filled action, a helpless action. And at that point, for God to say, knock it off. Drop your, drop your hands. Be still. And know that I'm here, that I'm God. Um, that, and I, again, I agree, that's not passive. That is letting go of fruitless flailing is part of what that is. On the other side, I might be the one who's causing part of the problem. I might be one of the perpetrators. Um, I might be, you know, if I'm caught in the middle of our political chaos, one side or another, um, it's not hard for me, especially if I've watched enough news, to get really ramped up and just, okay, here's where we need to go and start bashing. Um, there's, a, there's a time for me too, for God to say, is that doing you any good? Is that doing anybody any good? Knock it off. Um, drop, uh, the, the let it go, uh, the knock it off, to drop your arms, to drop your weapons, to drop your um, fruitless activity, and, and trust. And then that, then that does free us to really do, um, to really listen, and to, be, and to be working positively, not flailing. Does that make any sense? Can I go back to what that second line was about the de what desolations God has made? Mm -hmm. And I was thinking of Sodom and Gomorrah, mm -hmm. and there's other places in the Bible where God's angry because they're following other gods, yep. and he causes desolation. Yep. And that's, that's a major biblical issue and a major struggle throughout Scripture, especially early on we see passages like Sodom and Gomorrah. The flood actually is one of them. Yeah. And one of, one of the really ironic messages of the flood is God, God does one of these desolations of judgment in the story, and it doesn't do any good. It doesn't change a thing. And at the end of the flood story, God renounces that kind of action. Um, the Bible's not clean that way. There are all kinds of desolating acts you can see God doing. But as you, if you follow along the whole trajectory of Scripture, what kind of actions is God up to? And that's part of what this whole course is about, actually. Um, how does Jesus fit into smiting the earth? Um, that's part of our struggle. The actions of God in the flood, were there really only just a few righteous people in the world? Good question. Ready to move toward the flood? Uh, this, this, by the way, I slipped this one here just by the way. Um, we don't need to spend any time on it, the dying process and the dying of our world. Um, I worked long enough in, in hospice chaplaincy to know that, or you may have seen that with your own family members as well, that when, when someone is in the dying process, the world naturally shrinks. Yeah. Other concerns that have been important to the person who's on that final journey uh, drop away, old hobbies drop away, old interests drop away, uh, people start dropping away, which is one of the most painful things for family members as the, as the dying person's world shrinks. Um, it's inevitable. 
that is part of when we are when we are closing in um, and don't have much left. Um, those the last few people that we hang on to, um, and you hope you're going to be one of those that gets hung on to, but you might not be. Um, that's just a natural part of the dying process. I think there's something similar that happens to us on a global level when we are when we start to think our world is dying and there's nothing we can do about it. We start to slough off things that, and start not caring about things. Um, I don't want to say anything more than that right now, just to seed that thought in there, that there's a running temptation throughout all these issues to just, well, let's just give up and focus on what matters to us. I'll focus on me and Jesus, or whatever it happens to be. Um, Big Mac, maybe, I don't know. Okay. After the flood. We've spent time in, in the, our, our times here before on the flood, this is a, a really important story for me. Uh, and before, when we've looked at it together, we've looked at the dynamics of the flood itself and what kind of God is involved in this story. I don't, I'm not intending to, to, to redo all that now. I want to focus our attention on where it ends. But in order to focus on where it ends, we need to look on where it begins. So if you'd look, please, at um, Genesis 6. In Genesis 6, we're given three different causes for the flood, three different reasons that the flood happened. The first one's the weirdest. <laughs> Chapter 6, 1 through 4. Um, that's the story of the, um, these angelic beings coming down and mating with human women um, and producing giants. Um, nobody knows what to do with that passage. Okay. Um, I've never heard a sermon on this one. And it's one of the weirdnesses about it, too, is you got the, the, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Verse 4, those are the giants that are the, are the offspring of these angelic beings and human beings. Um, and supposedly that the flood should do away with them, right? And then they show up later on, too. Like, how they escape that? There are all kinds of interesting secondary biblical things. There's an interesting children's book by Madeline Langle. Mm -hmm. Many of you are into Marilyn, Madeline. Uh, it's called Many Waters, and it's about this era. And it has the Nephilim. Okay. It's a very interesting story and quite plausible, the way she puts it. But anyway, okay. I just thought I'd throw that in there. She's got some pretty interesting stuff. She does. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I would say about this is that this, these first, this first meaning, this first um, paragraph of chapter six is showing a cosmic disruption. Here you've got the lines of creation that God has set up, and the angelic world over here, and the divine world, and the human world down here, and clear boundaries between everything. And when the boundaries begin to get disrupted, when the boundaries begin to get torn apart creation starts coming undone. And that's part of the part of the message that's going, going on in that. It doesn't get picked up on much in scripture, so we can't really follow it much from there. The second one comes in chapter five, uh, chapter six, verses five through eight. Would somebody read that for us? Six, five through eight. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. Thank you. What's the problem that, that's causing the flood now? Human wickedness. Human wickedness. Yep. I mentioned on a footnote there, and I've got J and P up here. If any of you have done any study of, of Genesis and the, and, the, and the books of the Pentateuch, you may well be aware that scholars tend to identify what they see as uh, sources or documents, perhaps, underlying 
the books of Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Exodus, etc. In Genesis in particular, you can distinguish them some by what name they give to God. And so um, that name Yahweh, the Lord, that you see in the Lord all in caps, that doesn't get revealed in the storyline until Moses in Exodus. But here, that's what this one calls God. Verse 5, the Lord. And so the scholars will identify this as the Yahwist, the, the account that names God as Yahweh. And some of the features of that, of that account, that storyline, are that God is much more anthropomorphic. So it's Genesis 2 is the Yahwist account where God doesn't just create by word, but God creates by getting God's hands down in the dirt and shaping, shaping human critters and blowing breath into them. How much more hands-on? That's the kind of God who walks in the garden and says, Hey, Adam, where are you? Not, not terribly omniscient at that point, unless God's just fooling but, but So that's, that's this account. And the Yahwist account sees the problem that causes the flood as human wickedness. Uh, every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. Which is pretty damning right there. And God says, I'm going to blot them out. I'm going to blot them out and start over. The P account, that's, that stands for priestly. This was the, the, the priestly groups in Israel that, that shaped these narratives, appear to have. And you'll see that show up in verses 9 through 12. Uh, verse 11. Would somebody read, read for us 11, 11 and 12? Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. Which add verse 13 while we're at it. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Okay, according to this rendering of the flood, what, what's the cause of the flood? Violence. violence. Corruption and violence are the, are the terms that are typical of this one. Okay, that's really all I want to do with the beginning of the flood. Now we're going to slip to the end of the flood. We're going to skip over all the intervening stuff, and we'll get to... So the J account's ending of the flood is at the end of chapter 8. Um, there, I've got the whole thing right up there for you. God says, so they exit the ark, Noah builds a, a, an altar, um, offers offerings to God, and God loves the sweet smell of it, and God says, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind, for the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth, nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. What do you hear? What do you notice? What do you want to ask or comment on? Well, someone pointed out to me that this was before Moses in the giving of the law. So what animals were clean and unclean? And, and who said to offer them on, on an altar? So this is really quite Good point. Yep. interesting. Yeah, all of that. And if you go through the whole flood story, just looking to see what, which animals... You know, the one we're used to is they all go on two by two, mm -hmm. but at least one of the accounts says you know, you got to have seven pair of the clean animals mm -hmm. and two pair of the unclean animals, partly because you're going to sacrifice some of the clean ones afterwards. It's, if you start sacrificing these animals, you that's where the unicorns went. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, they missed the boat. That's right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and were those clear, clearly there were some antecedents in people's practices. <clears throat> of the sacrifice before it's codified under Moses. But yeah, we not until Moses do we actually have in scripture the coding of what's clean and what's unclean. What else? <coughs> this is probably very, I don't even know the right word, but I read, you know, God promised he'd never destroy the earth by water. Well, maybe it's fire the next time. You know, I, I just, it, it's so specific to never would he flood it again. 
I think that's, a, I don't know if you heard her, I think that's a crucial issue, that if you stuck only with the next chapter, chapter 9, God promises never again to destroy the, the, world, the world by a flood. And plenty of folks have picked up on that, including a lot of African-American spiritual stuff, the fire next time. Um, well, yeah, flood the first time. Never, God's never going to do that again, but wait till the fire comes. You're like, oh, that's kind of slippery. <laughs> this passage contradicts that. This passage says, no, I will never again destroy every living creature. It doesn't say fire, water, coffee, whatever. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, I still don't, I can't fathom this version of God. It just feels like an abusive man who says, you were horrible, I beat you up, but I'll never do it again. <laughs> I, I'm just not buying it. Like, I don't think this is God. Even I, I totally agree. And that's where, um, when, we, when we've looked at, in, a, in a course I was doing here before on the flood, that's what we focused on. That in fact, this God that we get through up through chapter 8 is so horrible um, that and in part and part of what I want you to see here is notice that for the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth according to the Yahwist version of this what was God's what was the flood supposed to accomplish that was the problem God's going to blot it out and start over guess what it's still here in other words the text itself and God's self is saying, it didn't work. It didn't do a blasted thing. Nothing changed. And I th that, that's, that's my response to that, is I think the text and God in the text sets it up that way specifically so that we're, we're kind of following along this awful, awful story. And God says, guess what? It didn't work. That's not who I am. And that's where the next chapter becomes so crucial. But you add to that that Noah's family after this, after all of this, becomes pretty ugly. I mean... Pretty fast. You know. Yep. I, I, I think that, I mean, to me, the Hebrew scripture um, captures a lot of history uh, of a lot of theological history that is um, shared and, you know, retained, but that we need to look at in, in that context. Listening to the conversation and reading it this way, I take it as especially after what Melanie said, is I look at it as God was growing and learning himself. And just like us, we try things. I think from a parent perspective, you try mm -hmm. things and you realize whether they work or not. That is another possible way to read this, that God, God God's own self is growing and learning and saying, that didn't work. I'm not going to do that again. But God destroyed everybody. Like, that is a big mistake. Yeah, it is a big mistake. That's not just that I'm not going to spank my kids again. That's like a big deal. So, I mean, I get it, Celeste, I agree, but, like, ooh. My own take is that the, the clash of the image of God that we have in Genesis 6, 7, and 8 and the image of God that we have in Genesis 9 is so extreme that I think, I think my, my belief is that God sets up that clash to make us look at that and ask who really is God. So let's, I'm going to go there to chapter 9 before we lose it. <laughs> okay, chapter 9, this is the P ending then. Um, would someone read for us please verses 1 through 7? And as, it, as it's read, listen for what you think, what, what the tone of this is, what the mood of it is. God bless, this is nine. Nine, one through seven. Yeah. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. The fear and dread of you shall rest on every animal of the earth on, on, and on every bird of the air, on everything that creeps on the ground, and all 
on all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And just as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your own lifeblood I will surely require a reckoning. From every animal I will require it, and from human beings, each one for the blood of another. I will require a reckoning for human life. Whoever sheds the blood of a human by a human shall that person's blood be shed. For in his own image God made humankind. And you, be fruitful and multiply, abound on the earth and multiply in it. Thank you. What's the tone? What's the mood? Do a better job. Do a better job. <laughs> There will be consequences. Maybe before there, I mean, when you do something, this is what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Maybe he's educating them. There will be consequences. Yeah. He's also giving you stewardship. Stewardship. Stewardship, stewardship mm -hmm. is here. He's saying, okay, you know, here we go. You've got this, yep. you've got this, you've got this, you've got this, and you can eat this, but, you know, not this. <clears throat> but still, there's a lot of blessing that's going on in the first part of this. There is. And the stewardship that you're talking about is renewed stewardship. It's stewardship from Genesis 1 and 2. Um, renewed again now. There's a strong renewal of creation, uh, a do-over. Uh, and the, the very fact that it begins and ends as it does. Um, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Again, verse 7, be full, fruitful and multiply, abound on the earth and multiply in it. The very fact that it, God makes an envelope of that, begins and ends with that. Um, that's, that's a thematic focus of this. That was right there from Genesis 1. We're, we're doing it over. What about all the reckoning stuff in the middle? <laughs> we'll go there. Okay. Yep. Okay. So, now if you think about the story back there in Genesis 1 and 2, um, what were the humans allowed to eat? Plants. Plants. And anything from any of the trees except the tree of the knowledge of evil. Wide open use of the plants. Were they permitted to eat animals? In that opening story? Say anything about it. No, there's nothing in there in those opening chapters about eating animals at all. All the plants, I give you all the trees of the field of the floor, of the garden for food. It's all there for you to eat. Um, so you know, so th just thinking aside from biologically and scientifically, thinking just thematically, um, this is the initial intention is, is clearly vegetarian. Um, that, that the animals and the humans both are there, are, are allowed to eat the plants. That's what we get to eat. That was God's intent. What's God doing now? Hmm. Now before we miss that first line there, think back to Genesis 2 and Adam in the garden What's, what's, what's Adam's relationship with the critters? Take care of them. Take care of them. Part of the human job is to care for and to nurture the rest of the creatures and to name them. Give them names. And look and see, is there a good partner for you among them? No? Okay. We'll fix that. Um, there's a... There's, uh, there's a very different kind of relationship between humans and animals. What's the relationship now? Fear and dread. The fear and dread of you shall rest on every animal of the earth. Um, and every bird, every, all fish, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Just as I before gave you the green plants, now I give you everything. Makes me wonder about the animals now. Half of the animals eat other animals, and other half eat just plants. I wonder before the fall and before the flood, whether animals only ate all of them ate plants, or how you know that's a 
big quizzical thing. Yeah, and that's where if I try to move into the scientific realm and how the whole bio, biosphere works, I mean, the entire biosphere is bloody, period. It just is. Whether it once was that way or not, whether that was God's intent or not, I don't know. Um, I'd like to suggest that God is grieving through every line of this. The whole problem that, that the flood was supposed to take care of was violence in the earth. And the flood didn't do a blasted thing. And so here now is God committing God's self to a now violent earth. And an earth that's never going to be nonviolent again. God saying, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Um, violence is here. You are going to be um, raping all the creatures. You are going to be eating them. Uh, you're going to be taking their blood. I grant it to you. It's, um, it is now a violent world. And by the same token, um, you, violence is going to be hitting you as well. You're going to be perpetrating violence because that's what the, how the world has become. You're going to be receiving violence as well. Animals will be attacking you. Human beings will be attacking one another. And I demand um, the life that's there. I demand that that life be respected. And they're in the middle of the whole thing. This is the center verse of the whole passage. You shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, with its blood. And now in this new and violent world that I commit myself to, I ask you to do this. I ask you that when you do take life and eat it, that you respect that lifeblood. Pour the life on the ground. Kind of similar to um, Native Americans asking forgiveness for the, for the deer that they're about to shoot or wherever it is. I want you to respect that life and return that life to me. I hear this passage as a, as a deeply grieved God saying, okay, I'm with you in this in a long haul. I'm not going anywhere. But I know that this is now a permanently violent world. And I'm going to walk, up, walk through it with you. Something very unsettling came into my head during this discussion. I'm um, not surprised. <laughs> Maybe he's allowing them to kill animals now because all they were killing was each other before, and he thought maybe... Oh. Divert it from, I don't know. From, from Kill the animals instead of one another. An, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, we're almost at the end of our time. Within, I, I want you most of all today to hear the grief of God. This is a very different picture of God than we get in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. Uh, in, I want you to hear the grief of God in these verses, and then, with that, the promise that comes. Um, so chapter 9 the verses that follow the ones we read in church this morning God said to Noah well, yep that's right as for me verse 9 I'm established my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with uh, a few other creatures or humans no every living creature that's with you the birds the domestic animals every living every animal of the earth as many as came with you out of the ark I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all, flood, all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. This is my sign of the covenant that I make between you and every living creature that's with you. Verse 13. I have set what in the clouds? Bow. I think I've shared in some other context too that I was assuming as I was growing up that the words for, it was just sort of accidental, that the word for bow and the word for rainbow are the same. But they're the same in Hebrew, too. It's not accidental at all. What does it say for God to say, I'm setting my bow up there in the clouds? Putting it away. For this now violent world, I myself am renouncing the violence, and I put my bow in the cloud as a sign for you that I have hung it up, and I'm taking a different pathway uh, for dealing with it. We're dealing with my commitment to this now permanently broken world. And if you don't get the point, you can keep on going through. I think there are five times in there that it tells you how many, who all it includes? Every living creature on the face of the earth for the duration of the earth. This is God's permanent commitment to this broken world. 
Well, we've solved everything I know at this point. Um, just uh, where we're going, um, I'm skipping Abraham and Sarah, and I'm skipping Moses. Um, you can look those up if you wish. <clears throat> uh, next week, we're going to move into the prophets and how God, how God in the prophets, God takes a new step in, in how, to, uh, how to deal with this broken world. I want to pull in um, Abraham and Sarah and Moses and the prophets of doing that. Uh, two weeks from now, a bigger picture. And the question is, what if it's not all about us? On the 10th, what if the upward call goes down? That's what Jesus is all about. And then finally God. I think the ladies' retreat is the week of March 10th. It's Friday, Friday Saturday, Sunday, I mm -hmm. think. Um, we're going to miss the 10th. You'll never know the answer. <laughs> Let's go out singing. Just a moment. You are recording this, so we could listen to podcasts. Yes, and I hope I remembered you. <laughs> though the earth shall change, though the mountains tremble, though the waters rage, you are here. Though the nations war, though the peoples battle, though the empire falters, we will not fear. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next week.